0: Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Sanjo Rocco, founder and CEO of Sanzo, whose mission is to bridge cultures by connecting people to global flavors. Sanzo's flagship product is the first Asian-inspired sparkling water using real fruit, plus no added sugars, artificial, natural flavors, And in this episode, Sandro shares his story of how he started this company as a solo founder, bootstrapping originally, eventually raising a little bit more than a million dollars last year in 2020 from the likes of Jen Rubio from Away and Scott Belsky as well. And we go into how to actually grow a beverage brand, getting distribution, acquiring customers, all that and more in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Sandro Rocco, founder and CEO of Sanzo. Sandro, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time and excited to talk about uh, Sanzo, your, your company, uh, your drink, your beverage company. And there's so much to talk about with this. I would love for you to tell people what is this company? What are you doing now today with it?
1: Yeah. So first off, you know, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm Sandra Rocco. I'm the founder and CEO of Sanzo. And we're the first Asian-inspired sparkling water using real fruit plus no added sugar. So, um, you know, if you're used to drinking, you know, for any sparkling water fans, you know, you 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 most likely have a beverage that has like a a quote-unquote natural flavor. So if you pour it out, it's like clear. Um, Ours actually has color because we're using the real, um, the real fruit juice. And specifically, our fruit inspirations are coming from. Um, the Eastern hemisphere, the, representing, you know, 60 plus percent of the world's population, but you know, you don't see it on, you don't typically see it on mainstream grocery shelves. So we're trying to, uh, we're trying to change that.
0: And I always have to go back to the beginning. I think it's fun to kind of go from the early times. So for you, where did this idea come from in the first place?
1: Yeah. So um, it was around the middle of 2018. And I, you know, I, I live in New York City. And um, at the time, it just felt like Asian things just kind of became cool um, for <laughs> you know, you know, a very simple way of putting it. Um, you know, Crazy Rich Asians was you know the, the number one film at the box office. Um, but then even if you kind of dove deeper than that, though, it was, you know, there, there were a lot of restaurants that were, you know, perhaps a bit more Eurocentric inspired, flipping over and becoming more, you know, like, like Asian concepts were were, were opening up. Um, when you read more food media, uh, or if, even if you were on your streaming services, Netflix, Hulu, um, heck, even Spotify, um, yeah, you know, if you just looked at a variety of, I'll say, like consumer products, and that could be physical or digital, um, there's just so much more of an of, of an Asian inspiration. And yet, what I found was there was Nothing really in the beverage space um, that I felt was adequately representing that, and so I mean I worked I was working at a technology company at the time. Our fridges were stocked with a lot of sparkling water brands, um, but felt like hey, there's some room here to do something, um, do something fun and you know innovative as at least as far as the, the beverage industry goes. Um, and so that's kind of where the, the journey began.
0: From that then, so did you decide to start this on your own? Did you get a partner right away? Like, how did that go for you? I'm curious.
1: Yeah, no, and it's a great great question starting like all like the, the really nitty gritty there. So, you know, yeah. I, I am the sole founder. You know, I did end up kind of going at it my own, my, you know, my, my own path. Um, had actually self-financed the business and moonlit for, um, you know, a year um, while at my day job before actually, you know, leaving and, and starting the business on my own. Um, you know, did talk about it with certain friends. Um, certain other folks that I thought just might've been interesting to work with. Um, what I eventually learned though, was just, I don't know if it, it was my own personality or whatnot that like, it just kind of needed to be me or either that, or I just didn't find the, the exact right co-founder fit. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was me and actually, you know, I, I, I talk about how I, you know, the original idea came in 2018, you know, incubated and actually, you know, launched the brand on um, the summer of 19, uh, I was the only employee until October 2020, so um, really did the 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 solopreneur thing for for quite a bit. But you know, fortunately, we do have um, a bit of a team now starting to support us.
0: In in that year or so, you're moonlighting, you're working your job still, and this is something a lot of entrepreneurs like. Do you take the jump right away and kind of go all in? Do you kind of work on the side, what, nights and weekends? For you in that year, like, what were some of the things you were doing? Like, how far did you get in the business before you ended up going full time into it?
1: Yeah, so. Um, I mean, one of the things I found interesting about CPG or consumer packaged goods um, is that there's actually quite a fair amount of R&D that needs to get done before you really go to market. And, uh, you know, a lot of that R&D time is, uh, anyone will tell you, it's it's a lot of waiting. Um, you, know, you, <laughs> yep. put out, you, you put out specs or even you might you might test out a formulation, um, but then, you know, you don't get that feedback for, for, for a little bit. Um you know, for for myself and you know for the, for this brand as well, um, even if we had a formulation, like I would take that to farmers markets on you know nights and weekends, so times that you know didn't have to coincide with a regular day job. So, um, you know, there's actually quite a bit that you could do in I'd say, you know, the first like six months to maybe you know I probably stretched it going a full year because at the time we already had um, you know about like fifteen or so um, you know, clients, you know, like retail partners, you know, restaurants and independent food markets. And, um, you know, I would spend my mornings, um, taking the subway or taking Uber pools at like 6am to deliver the product before going to work. So, um, you know, I, I definitely stretched it a bit. A lot of it, frankly, was, I knew that this industry or, you know, when I started talking to, to folks who did specifically beverage, um, you know, they did. They did talk about how beverage can be a bit more of an expensive business, right? So, you know, unlike um, you know potentially a, a fully digital product, um, you know, we're not just spinning up you know AWS instances and uh, going from there. You know, the manufacturing a product actually does take a bit of a, a bit of capital. So, you know, it was really trying to be um, as scrappy as possible um, in the early days, just because we knew it was going to get expensive very quickly. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, of course. I've talked to a couple different beverage people on the show and it's just like, it's a lot to deal with in terms of obviously the product side of it, but then also distribution. So let's start with the product side of it. How did you approach then who you're going to have actually create this product? How'd you go about that process for other people who are wondering, you know, trying to get into CPG, like how'd you even go about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I came in with a true beginner's, I wouldn't even just say mentality, like, like I'm a beginner. Like this is my I'm first a time beginner. ever launching uh, a food and beverage product. So um, actually, I mean, I, I did what I, what I would hope, you know, a lot of your, like, whatever your listeners are thinking that I did, probably did. So, you know, order purees off of Amazon or found other third party websites. Um, com- the, the initial, the, the first few recipe, the first recipe iterations were actually my own um, off of a Google sheet and uh, a scale that, cooks would use in a kitchen, just, you know, like a, like a, a mass balance that you would use in a, in a, in a chemistry class. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, it was as rudimentary as, as that, um, you know, one thing you do learn again, pretty early on, if you are getting into this space is if you're going to have a product sit on shelf, you need what's called um, a scheduled process, which long and short of it is it's a food scientist who signs on your recipe saying that this won't, uh, harm anyone um from a food safety perspective it won't rot it won't you know cause anything crazy like that and so you know you work you know hand in hand with someone there uh, with, with that scientist to get the, the process to, to the recipe to a point where they can sign it off and they're actually very cheap resources i mean not to get too thick into the weeds of it but um cornell um university runs like a food lab um if you're if you're located in new york And, you know, just to put some dollar figures out there, I mean, a a recipe sign off is as cheap as like $200 to get that level of... Yeah. So, I mean, you can go, if you're paying a formulator, if you're really going to commercialize it, you know, that can get you into the, you know, thousands of dollars. And I would argue when you're ready to for for prime time, it's actually worth, it's really worth actually, um, you know, paying those expenses. But in the earliest days, um, you know, you can, there are resources out there for folks who are trying to really scrap it because as much as the industry can be expensive as you're scaling, in the earliest days, you know, it is a lot of, um, I'd actually say it's a very diverse founder set. I've actually found it to be very encouraging. You know, it's, it's a lot of folks who find maybe had, you know, a four year college degree and worked in the technology sector, but it's also a lot of folks who maybe um, you know, high school educated, just have an idea, you know, they're making a, a salsa or some kind of sauce or, or something that or a cookie, um, that yeah. their friends and family loves. And now they're just, you know, selling it at and, and, and building out from there. So, um, it's 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 kind of a fascinating industry, yeah, and, and just how diverse it is.
0: <laughs> when you when you say ready for prime time, that's at the point where you may spend thousands of dollars potentially on someone. Like, what what do you categorize that as? Like, how big do you look at that? Like, when someone would potentially want to spend more than the two hundred you mentioned, instead going thousands and going kind of all out on that, what at what point do you think would that would, would that be?
1: Sure, I mean, I, I would say there are certain retailers that if they call you, um, you do not probably want to go to them with. Um, <laughs> you know, with something that can't scale is probably the best way to say it. So, um, you know, for us, it was Whole Foods. So Whole Foods, and in the, in, in there are um, 13 regions in the United States, you know, us being in New York, our home market was the quote, unquote, Northeast region, which encompasses New York City and the, and the surrounding area. Um, it is, as you might imagine, the most competitive um, region. The good and bad, if you do well there, you know, it, it can kind of cascade into, you know, Other regions, potentially, uh, if things go well, you know, a a national distribution relationship, Um, you know, uh, a Whole Foods level retailer also comes with them a, uh, you know, the nationally reputable distributors Um, and in the food and beverage industry, your distributor is in many ways, just as if not even more important um, than the actual retailers that you're working with, and so the problem. Yeah, what I would say is, if you go to these kinds of um, you know folks with um, recipes that don't scale or operations that are not you know locked tight a bit more, it it can literally end your business because if if there are product efficient if there are quality assurance deficiencies, you know uh, certainly the worst thing you can do is actually cause harm to a customer you know you you are selling food and beverage products and so you know if you don't have that buttoned up and you're doing it at that level you know it's basically a death sentence for the business so um you know at that point you know that's why the industry can get a little bit expensive because you do have to take a bet you know at a certain point that we are going to be a bigger brand and so um you, you do have to put those resources in to um you know commercialize your your recipe and your brand
0: at, at what point then, for you, did you end up quitting your job and, and going all in? How, how long was it? You said fifteen months or a year? Just about,
1: yeah. And, and, and for us, I mean, it was a, there. There were a couple of things that, that made it a little easier. One, um, in the company that I was working uh, for, um, you know, we had bit, we had hit a bit of a, a, a rougher patch, um, and so you know, candidly, I was probably going to get laid off anyway um, at some point just because of uh, headcount reduction, like necessity. Yeah. Um, As well, though, you know, it it was coming at a time and it just it did just kind of work out this way where um, we were starting to gain more distribution. I found that, you know, three out of my five business days were up at, you know, 4 or 5 a.m. to make these deliveries before I was going into work anyway. Um, And then, yeah, I'd say the biggest thing was just was getting to a point where I was like, okay. I either need to start putting more time into this because I I can get more sales that way, or I need to not and figure out like something else to do. Um, And yeah, I think for every entrepreneur, it's different. You know, some folks, and and I don't think there's a a, a right or wrong here. Um, I often tell other entrepreneurs, oftentimes tell other people who are going through this, it is likely one of, probably it it is possibly the hardest decision you'll ever make professionally. because it's the one thing that's not rooted in logic. Um, a lot of times, whether it's choosing a certain job opportunity or for certain folks who went to certain, you know, uh, institutions, like you know, like certain elite institutions, you could kind of compare, you know, U.S. news and world rankings. Or if it was a bank, it's like, okay, there's a, an objective thing that says you should go to Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan over the other banks or things like that. This is the, the only time where it's actually completely illogical. If like you actually try <laughs> to apply logic and know what the failure rates are on startups, you just, you would never do it. So um, you yeah, know, at some point it's just kind of what works for you. And um, for me, it was, yeah, I need to work myself to the bone, like get myself to the very last inch of the cliff and finally be like, okay, I now have to jump. Otherwise, like you're just in, you're just, you're never gonna do it otherwise.
0: Yeah, you can't um, do both but, anymore. You've done, he, he just worked yourself too much to handle basically two full-time jobs essentially.
1: Yeah, but the leap is scary. I mean, you know, especially for folks who might be listening to this. Like, it's not like we had enough revenue to float even my rent. Um, you know, we weren't even at that <laughs> point. So, you, and I think the thing that I've learned again, it may be different for food and beverage versus other verticals, but sure. um, you know, for food and beverage, like, you don't usually get that you don't usually get to a point in revenue where it's that strong to feel that good. Like you actually have to make the jump typically, um, at least in beverage a little bit earlier because it does require, um, it it tends to require a lot of like field work, like being at stores, um, you know, shaking hands and well, not shaking hands anymore uh, during the (laughs) pandemic, but uh, in general, yeah. Yeah. Like being out in the field. So, um, yeah, it can vary for a lot of people, but that was, you know, that was my path.
0: Yeah, and I definitely want to go through the distribution side that you kind of alluded to a little bit, but I, with that, your first customers, taking sure. to the early days, we're still we're going to progress to today, but in the early days, sure. getting your first customers, your first sales, what did that look like? How did you go about that?
1: Uh, I mean, it's still how I do a lot of it today, which is cold like cold outreaches. Um in uh, it's a little different now that we have some distribution, but in the earliest days when you have nothing, um, the best thing you can do is literally just walk into a place. Um, especially, and I'll say this, specifically for food and beverage but, and you're targeting like a boutique market, a lot of folks will try to email in. And I've seen firsthand in this industry, this is very much an in-person or phone call driven business. Um, yeah, it, it, like email obviously huge for bigger accounts, but the easiest way that um, entrepreneurs can validate their, their product is by walking straight in. And frankly, it's something that a lot of people won't do so um you know probably the easiest thing that i would just recommend is just getting out in the field um, after that it's yeah talking one-on-one I mean, again it's a, it's a lot tougher now during the pandemic but um for us it, for, and for me it was um you know when we did get a couple of first customers who did just buy in and literally what that means was i showed up with samples asked to speak to the key buyer or decision maker and pitched them on the spot And then they said yay or nay, and obviously got a lot of nos, but got you know my first couple of yeses. The product goes on the shelf, and then the key is not just getting it on the shelf, but getting it off the shelf. So supporting that with um, in when you could do them in person customer demos. So literally, uh, there's a market in uh, in Chelsea on 22nd on 22nd and 8th Avenue that I would go into on a Monday and Tuesday night and pour samples of Sanzo, and they would sip it if they liked it. A lot of them went, a lot of it because they were talking to the founder and there's some social pressures there that you can take advantage of. Um, (laughs) And they would go and physically buy the product and you just kind of create initial momentum um, that way. It's as as, um, unsexy as it sounds in the earliest (laughs) days.
0: (laughs) With that as well. So how did you decide then which which retailers are you gonna go into or distribution partners you're gonna work with? Because that's something where again there's so many different options potentially, but it's a little more of a niche market. So how did you think about that for your company?
1: Yeah, I mean, we didn't we knew, especially with what I, I kind of talked to you before about the need to be very buttoned up when you're approaching a Whole Foods type of yep. retailer. Um, you know, we wanted to frankly make our mistakes at the at you know at at, at the smaller independent markets. And a lot of these folks I mean, they're they're I mean they're, they're the lifeblood to the the food and beverage industry because they see it as their jobs to take chances on new food and beverage brands, and their customers go there to discover you know the new like the very newest um, and earliest brands. Uh, so you know, part of it was just kind of walking around the city, and then uh, I'll tell you one thing that I did was I would go into one of these markets look at the brands that were already on shelf and just cold outreach those Instagram accounts. You know, most of them had way less than 10,000 Instagram followers. Most of those brands, you know, it's the founders who are running it. Um, and a lot of these folks are down to talk. And in many ways, if they're on that shelf, that means that they also probably started within the last um, I'll say within the last three years. And so we're just definitely more open to having these kinds of conversations. So um, I would recommend that to folks who are getting into it. And if you want to like developing basically an early lead list Um, you know, I got that from one of these outreaches and they were like, yeah, I'll give you, you know, three to five stores that I think you should target and kind of go from there. Um, It's the same five to the same three to five stores that I tell other people when they hit, hit us up. So Um, it it is a very, um, as as much as it's very competitive, uh, because you are literally, I mean, it's it's a fixed amount of shelf space. Um, This industry actually does tend to be quite collaborative. Um, And and, and that is one thing that I actually do really like about um, the natural food and beverage world is that a lot of folks are quite collaborative, but um, I I think it is worth folks knowing like, you know, where to,
0: where to start, you know, asking the right questions. (laughs) Yeah. Getting the um, foot in the door at least. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. From that point then, so that early distribution, obviously you're getting your first customers, your cold outreach and you still do cold outreach, but how have you shifted the distribution as you've grown? So have you gotten kind of that first validation and then grown from there. And so it's still pretty new, but I'm curious as how, how the progression of kind of distribution has gone for you as time has gone on.
1: Yeah. And again, people will take different paths. Frankly, a lot of people probably what I what I have done is probably step like like people just bypass it um, altogether. They may raise more more money upfront and you know already sure. get a distributor on board. I went the very um, you know build it brick by brick type of approach. Um, but so how it worked for us was you know we had our first you know 10, 15, 20 doors at this point I guess um, with that method me just walking in um, and also self delivering the product. At some point which worked out well for us each of those stores was selling through a good amount of product every week so i was spending my time you know in the mornings like doing more deliveries than i wanted to and so when you're doing deliveries you can't sell because that's you know you can only, you can only be in one place at one time um but what that does though is you can then approach a distributor saying hey we already have this book of business if you want to take it on you like, here it is. This is free sales. You're, you're already going, um, you know, to these doors delivering, you know, these other products. We're just giving you revenue, and uh, wow. distributors like that. <laughs> distributors like when you do their work for them. So um, that's how we got our first distributor, and in many ways, that's kind of how it still works. Uh, you're just going. You're just leveling up with each with each one. Um, so.
0: Yeah. and <laughs> saying your approach, you know, going brick by brick though, to that point, why did you decide to go that route versus another? Because there's always like many options. There's a thousand different decisions you make in a business, which way to go, bigger VC money, not you could go self-funded, you could do there's so many different ways. And I'm always curious with different entrepreneurs, like how how you personally decide. how did you decide to go route you did?
1: I guess I just, you know, it may be, you know, I I'm a child of immigrants my parents immigrated here from the philippines in the 80s and um gosh i learned like really the value of a dollar and so for me it was i don't feel comfortable asking folks for money especially not having grown up in you know super like super privileged circles i I ended up going to a pretty privileged uh you know college but um you know my own network was not you know crazy like that and so before I could even ask those folks for money, I was like, well, I better put my own skin in the game um, because folks would feel it. Uh, You know, the earliest supporters would feel it if I asked them for money. So um, it's just kind of what I could afford or was even willing to do. I just, I didn't feel comfortable even pitching or asking for money unless I knew a little bit more about what I'm doing. And I do think that that's actually made me, you know, better just, I mean, both business owner, fundraiser, all of that now, because I went through that. And again, some people that's not their journey and obviously it's fine, right? Like uh, it, no judgment, you know, people grow the business, grow the business the way that they need to. Um, I just feel, felt like for my own path, my own journey, um i just i i wanted i wanted to know i wanted to learn uh, <laughs> yeah so yeah
0: <laughs> well and then eventually you raised 1.3 million uh last year take me through that process then Re- fundraising how you decide who to bring on board in terms of your investors i'm curious about that
1: yeah i mean what's interesting was my goal was to actually only raise 600,000 And I feel very fortunate that I was actually able to raise the one three because we've needed, uh, yeah, we definitely it it was definitely advantageous (laughs) to have it, especially during the pandemic. Yep. Um, So I'll say, you know, that round got published. uh, I guess it was Forbes in uh, like July or August of 2020. Um, Truthfully, that round took probably about seven to nine months to put together. Um, So and it's interesting because you know I started out trying to raise six hundred. Was doing very terribly at that and then all of a sudden it got the round got hot and i raised 1.3 in about six weeks um just kind of show you the volatility that can occur in a fundraising round so um you know i was still going in the earliest days just my own very like yeah kind of bootstrap self-financing type of mentality um but you know got to a point where i was starting to be stretched for dollars and so opened up uh you know we did it through a, a convertible note round um Fortunately, had some friends put in the first, you know, maybe like 50, 75K. Um, and then we did get, a, a, basically, he was an early customer. Uh, his name is Scott Belsky, um, Chief Product <laughs> Officer at Adobe. Yeah, very prominent angel investor. At the time, uh, I would literally look up all of my customer, customers. So, um, you know, when I got a Shopify, you know, you get the ka I'm yep. like, just curious, you know, we weren't getting a ton of orders, so I'm always, and, and it was my first time running a business, so I'm like, hey, this is cool, like, who is this person? Um, and uh, obviously, no, I mean, I knew who Scott Delsky was just because I, yeah, I, I'd been in technology and so reached out to him, uh. <laughs> silly, silly me. Like I didn't find his investment website. So I actually asked him, Hey, Scott, do you invest? And now it's like, that was the dumbest question ever because <laughs> obviously he, he invests. Um, yep. <laughs> so he came on, you know, that brought in a couple other folks, but we actually, I mean, I'll be honest, like, we did hit another, um, lull. The biggest thing that really spurted on was around, um, May, I want to say, um, and this was in the middle of the pandemic, you know, it was really bad times um jen rubio came on who is the co-founder of away and between her and, and and scott um you know they both just have a lot of trust and like their networks re- like they you know, fortunately the switches started flipping on on the networks and then the round just got like i'll, I'll tell you this they like they'll first like couple, like maybe call 200,000 maybe took me 5 months the last 1.1 $1. $1 million took me six weeks um, and probably could have even happened quicker than that. The problem was like, I was still the only employee. So I was still like having to like run the business and put up the numbers that yeah. needed to, you know, validate, you know, what we were doing and then also go fundraise. So um, quite a stressful time during the summer. Um, I, it was, that was like, yeah, I had to really kind of dig deep on that one. Um, but uh, it was we got we got through it.
0: <laughs> what type of feedback were you getting from from Jen and Scott like when they you know, obviously they became investors? They've done a number of investments, uh, some higher profile. Like, what were they saying about why they invested in you?
1: It was brand and brand potential. They were like, we think this product basically like it hits, and also they they saw where I was going with building community and building community, and that that community itself was already that a, a, a significant portion of that community had like high purchasing power but was significantly underrepresented so basically long short of it was you know, us being an Asian inspired product, if you look at uh, just how much like the the, the API uh, purchasing power, plus how much of it we spend on our demographic spends on brands, hmm. and how much we over index on like social media. So essentially, like, you're creating your initial word of mouth flywheel, like the early uh, rumblings were there if you if you created the right product and then marry that with the macro trends that, you know, we all had seen and that I talked about with, you know, crazy rich Asians and all this other stuff. Um, It just kind of created that, um, that marriage that we weren't, that we, we both had an initial tribe of Asian Americans, but that the broader American populace was also um, it it was open to that population as well. So um, and then look like ultimately you know, I had to convince them that I was a good that I could be a good steward of of capital, um, that I could build a good team. Um, you know, we're going especially through that team building process right now. Um, actually, we're wrapping up another fundraising round right now. So, as, especially in beverage, you know, one of the things as well is can this person just continue to raise money because you do yeah. need to raise a decent right. amount of money to to keep the lights on. Um, so, yeah, I mean. If you want other specifics, maybe you know, maybe you could ask. uh, Maybe I'll get you to ask Jen and Scott. But
0: um,
1: I think those are the the primary, the primary things.
0: No, it's it's good to provide that context. I think it's for other entrepreneurs. It's like why did someone, why did they, why was he able to convince them to invest? Because it's such a difficult journey. I've talked to people who have taken a few weeks to raise funding, and I've talked to people who've taken ten months to raise funding, Mm -hmm. and it is for the most part, it takes months and months and months. And a lot of yes. no's along the way to get funding for any company, you know, whether it be a smaller, you know, pre-seed or seed round, whether it be people even raising series A, series B, it doesn't even get easier necessarily. It's just different uh, because once you get a series A, then it's like, okay, well, are you hitting your metrics that you needed to hit to get there? Yeah. You know, so it's all these different things. It's still difficult and regardless of along the process. So I appreciate the context and a couple of things you said there stood out to me, one being the community aspect of it. How have you kind of thought about community building community within as you're, as you're building your company and how does that play a part into it? You kind of alluded to it already, but I'm curious as to anything else you've intentionally done to really build community around it.
1: Yeah. I mean, so as you might imagine, you know, the first, um, logical tribe for us to try to build is, you know, is the Asian American demographic, which, um, you know, I kind of alluded to the, the, the dynamics there. Um, but you know, for us, it's not enough to just create a product and sell it to this Community, right? right. Um, I, uh, you know, growing up, actually, um, you know, worked in, in in the food service like space, and I've always had an infatuation and like such a respect for people who, um, who work in the, who work in the industry. Um, and so one of the earliest things that we did uh and i mean it was both a business decision and also a brand a brand and brand marketing decision was really trying to partner up with um the asian inspired concepts and restaurateurs in new york city so um you know, on the business side of it it was hey we can sell our product here and we're not having to compete on the shelves of whole foods that can cost you know that can you have more marketing dollars uh needed to to you know, to pump up sales you know you're sitting in an environment Um, where people are more naturally predisposed to consuming your product. And that's awesome. Um, And the other part of that too, is, you know, there's cross marketing potential, right? So, you know, restaurateurs, the actual restaurants themselves, people love following, you know, if you look at their feet, these folks' feeds, um, you know, uh, chefs are generally going to be much more famous than beverage entrepreneurs. And I'm totally cool with that. But uh, (laughs) how do we, But then, you know, these folks are also looking for other ways to cross promote. So, um, you know, tapping into that early was a very, was a very deliberate decision. But also, uh, on a personal note, again, uh, being so... um, I, I, I love the industry and once yeah. COVID hit and we saw how, how, um, you know, how that industry got struck, you know, we, we did make it a very, made it a very intentional decision to invest even more heavily, um, into the industry. So I, I do like to say, you know, for our team, you know, we were among the first to start really contributing to, um, you know, employee funds when those folks were furloughed, um, especially, um, especially the the back of house employees who are typically undocumented immigrants um you know we wanted to make sure that you know we, that that their families um, you know could still uh, you know rely on them for even just you know rent food things like that i mean during the months of March April and May it was pretty rough um and so you know we're really proud of what we you know of the investments that we made there um and 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 I'll say coming out of hopefully the pandemic in the next um, couple of months. Yep. Uh, you know, we've seen that community give it, you know, give, give it back to us, both the restaurant community, the Asian American community, um, and then other folks who just like support those, you know, those communities as well. So um, it's, it's been uh, incredibly heartwarming over the last year, just to see how many people just, um, you know, resonate with what we're doing. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, committed to kind of continuing to pass it, pay it forward.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's one aspect of, of brand really is the community that you actually built around that. But then also with, in the beginning, even thinking about how you differentiate yourself as a product, especially looking at limited shelf space and how do you stand out to someone who's just passing by and to pick up this product? How do you think about the, the actual brand from that perspective, like visually how this would look and what you want to portray as people were seeing this? Like, how did you think about that side of things for the company?
1: Yeah, I mean, you are. I'll say you're. You're seeing it even more now that folks are developing. I mean, my, I had a, I had like a, what I call like the 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 point three second test. <laughs> that if you're scrolling on your Instagram feed, um, you know, very likely someone's attention you might have for 0.3 seconds, and can you get that person's thumb to stop when they hit your photo before they keep scrolling? I, I will say I, I'm actually surprised there are still so many. I think food and beverage brands who miss this, you know, you see an ad on Instagram and you're like, oh, I can't read that Mm -hmm. um, or, or or whatnot. Um, And then, and that translates to a shelf. Also, I will also say another test that I employed was there was a store down in Tribeca on canal street. And the little test that I had was if I'm walking on the sidewalk and and the the place had like a glass door, so you could see straight into it my test was, I should be able to look in, I need to be able to know that that's mine. And so for us, those were deliberate decisions on the orientation of our word mark going more vertical versus the traditional horizontal, making the fruit illustration um, you know, a little bit larger, obviously going with like more pastel colors. And then even from a font perspective, um, making sure the font was big enough that you could read it. But then overall, just like, was this an image that you could just see as being unique enough um, on a shelf. And at, at least right now it's so far so good. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know, you also see a number, I mean, we're not the only one, there are a number of brands that I would already call, um, you know, if not already there, then like very much on the border of like iconic in their, in their packaging design. And, you know, I think past those same, um, eye test rules, is in my, in my opinion, at least part of the reason why those brands are doing so well, because brand discovery, even for as much as we all talk about, um, you know, our Instagram feeds and creating communities, so much brand discovery is still happening at the store. When you're yep. just going through the aisles and you're like, that thing looks interesting, and you pull it off the shelf and put it in your cart, it's just, for many, for many people, it's still as simple as that.
0: With that as well, then, what type of like testing, or how often have you tested the different? As, as the packaging evolved or you tested before you actually obviously rolled it out because you can't, you're going to make a certain quantity of the product and mm-hmm. you can't just change it. But like, how did you test it or how have you tested along the way or has it evolved uh, since you first started?
1: Yeah. So actually our very first iteration of the, of the product was in a glass bottle. Um, a lot of that was on purpose from an operational perspective. So, I mean, not to get too into the weeds here, but um, yeah, we typically, <laughs> a, a, typically a minimum, um, canning run if you're going to run a product in cans tends to be somewhere in the neighborhood of ten thousand cans per 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 sku per unit per flavor um and if you're doing glass bottles uh it can actually actually find um contract manufacturers who will do as little as like 500 so um yeah so if you're looking to truly like you know mvp your uh your idea you know glass bottles are typically a good way to start now a couple things that we learned one um the product in a glass bottle, um, while interesting, uh, made people think of, of sodas because we had a color. We, we had color, so a lot of questions that we would get were like, "Hey, is there a lot of sugar in this?" Um, so, uh, for uh, for multiple reasons, that being one of them. Uh, it's a good thing that we were able to get to a scale enough that we were we, we knew we wanted to get the cans pretty quickly. Um, but one of the other things there too that we learned was if you in, in our very first iteration we did not actually have any functional callouts. So if you look at our can um, on the front face, it says "made with real fruit, no added sugar." Um, both of those callouts were directly from um, cu- uh, customer samplings. So. Oftentimes those would be the more than, and I was surprised. This is my first time doing it. Even yeah. more than calorie count, folks would ask, "Is this thing real fruit?" And is there any added? Is there any added sugar in here? And so, um, you know, those have still been actually some of the biggest costs we get on digital. Um, you know, when again we we don't do any in person demos, but um, you know when we get like emails that come in, like those are still the questions that are asked. And so by us putting it on the front of the can, um, you know, it does allow us to address it. You know. Like upfront, which I think is also helped with, I don't know, conversion rate or <laughs> however you want to measure it.
0: Yeah, and and from that too. Then, so looking at you went from retail and then going direct to consumer. It's a little bit different. Uh, I mentioned Instagram ads and everything as well with that. At what point did you decide to sell direct to consumer? Was that from the beginning?
1: Uh, when we got into cans, uh, we were we had like all website. Um, I did not invest super heavily into it because. Well, one—it's like kind of crazy to say this, but like a year and a month ago, buying beverages direct to consumer was still not that big of a thing. I mean, yeah. you know, maybe companies like Recess got away with it um, you know, because of their type of offering and you know and whatnot. But for the most part, a re- like a, a traditional, even upstart CPG company, just a beverage company, just wasn't really able to do it. Um, so yes, I would pack orders in my apartment for people who place orders, but I wasn't really advertising that much. Also, we didn't have that big of a budget. Um, but then once the pandemic hit, um, I, so my last job, I used to be ahead of growth. So spent a lot of money on Facebook and Instagram ads, um, noticed, you know, basically overnight once New York city hit uh, shelter in place, CPMs just fell off the. Off a cliff because of how much ad budget was being pulled, yeah. and so if there's one thing that my last job did teach me well it was like, ooh, okay, we have a good read on CPMS. Um, this might be a really good arbitrage opportunity to acquire new customers very cheaply, and you know that did prove to be pretty good for a lot of us who were able to take advantage of it. Um, but and then now again, we're super fortunate that um, you know these consu- these consumption habits have persisted. You know whether it's on Amazon or your own. Uh, owned and operated direct consumer website. Folks are now willing to spend more money on groceries than they did before the pandemic. It has fallen off from the from the the, the peak pandemic levels, but the new baseline is still significantly higher. So, yeah. um, you know, if you're looking for that first million dollars in revenue, um, that's that that's actually a channel now that is wild to say that <laughs> is not there literally as recently as 14 months ago.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's insane. <laughs> it's insane to think about how fast things can change Well, with a one, once in a generation global pandemic, but uh, it, things can change quickly. And one thing is we haven't really discussed yet is with the product itself. You mentioned the different SKUs, which are different flavors. How do you feel about that? Just in terms of like how many different flavors you want to offer at the beginning? And then, you know, how do you want to expand in those? Because, again, that's if you're looking at a minimum order per SKU. I mean, that changes things. So like, how have you thought about that side of the business?
1: Sure. So we knew that for a flavored sparkling water line, the minimum you needed to go out with was three. It was, was really three flavors. Um, and, you know, there are reasons why I picked the specific fruits that I did. Basically, the calamansi, which is, if you've never had it before, it's like a Filipino lime um, for your listeners. Uh, imagine a lime and an orange having a baby together. It's literally... Uh, lime on the outside you cut it open and it's it's orange but it's so it's tart with a little bit of sweet yeah. um the lychee was more floral and then the mango is is sweeter um so you know as, as far as the 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 initial uh launch um yeah you just you need three um at the same time to that point you know you don't want i, I don't i didn't feel like i wanted to create more operational difficulties by having so many skews and you know fortunately uh, all three of our SKUs sell quite well. They, 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 sell, they sell well in, dif- in different channels, um, but we're actually we, we usually produce pretty close to like equivalent amounts during um, during each run. And you know what I what I've what I've come to learn is usually folks go into R and D and release new SKUs uh, early on when one is a, or when one or multiple SKUs are just completely falling flat. Um, fortunately, we don't have that problem. And um, you know, when I think about the business, a lot of how I th- uh, how I've thought about it is, um, you know, that marginal dollar is right now is probably best spent on us either um, gaining more distribution um, or you know continuing to boost sales of our existing SKUs versus the R and D that goes into a new SKU. Now that said, as we're penetrating retail, that is changing a bit. You know, we we actually just began R and D for three new flavors. Um, and, that, and, there's some, and there are retail related reasons why it's important to continue to invest in, in flavor development. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would really caution um, entrepreneurs who are, uh, you know, I would say sub a million dollars in revenue um, to really uh, stay focused on their core SKUs before expanding too much. And even for us, when we think about new flavor development, you know, we view each of these flavors as a card to play with a retailer. So, you yeah. know, if we want to launch with so and so, it's something we can give them either some level of exclusivity or just or just novelty. What we've learned is buyers just really like to feel like they're being given something new. And so, if you just come out of the gate with all these flavors and you, you lose you you lose those cards. And so, we've been pretty deliberate about how we're releasing new flavors.
0: Yeah. And that's something I, I remember talking to, um, talking to the founder of how they kombucha, uh, we talked about how they get, were developing new flavors and like over time, obviously start with a few then expanding, you're always gonna expand, even like different types of drink options as well, sure. which is interesting to see how, um, the evolution of that company has gone they, they're like a hundred million dollar revenue company or something yeah. crazy crazy uh, yeah they're just crushing it uh and it's funny to see the evolution versus a smaller company and even like then i've seen other retail other companies getting to retail with um with a cookie dough company it was another thing where it's like looking at how they expanded to different different regions and different uh stores and everything it's just kind of fascinating to me the whole food space um something that's yeah, even on the investor side, we're investing in in tech and B two B tech uh, software, I should say. But like, it's still fun to hear like the consumer like CPG <laughs> companies and everything as well. And one thing you mentioned with with growth, you've grown a, a bit already. Obviously, looking at raising their funding round, but you mentioned the hiring side, something you're doing now. So on the hiring front, it started with you for a long time, like just you basically for a significant amount of time. How has the hiring gone for you? What's been helpful for you along the way as you've been building the team?
1: Sure. I mean, in the earliest days, I will say um, the methodology that I applied was basically around pain. Um, If I'm feeling pain and like, you know, my first few hires were just like, I can't. It was literally a point. I can't do this anymore. Um, I'm like it is like detrimental to the brand, to the business, to my own personal self to keep doing all of this. And so what are the things we can first, um, you know, Handoff, Or I'll even say this, like, what are the blind spots that I'm missing that could actually set me up for failure um, down the line that I can't see yet? And I think especially one of the lessons I learned in CPG is, and it's probably similar to, um, you know, the, the companies that you may fund in enterprise SaaS, um, you know, the, the bigger the enterprise, the longer the sales cycle. Um, and in a similar way with CPG, um, everything has a very long cycle. Manufacturing, um, sales and whatnot. And so, you yeah. know, a mistake you might make right now, you may not know, you know, until a couple months down the line, that's kind of daunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually multiplies as you get bigger, because when you're going from, you know, if you think about it like independent natural foods, to one region of Whole Foods, to let's say at the biggest, you know, level, a Walmart, a Costco, uh, whatnot, like, those take, like, a, a an even longer period of time. And so um, where I'm going with this is that like, in the beginning, it was solving for pain. Um, what do I most, what do I feel most acutely now, especially as, you know, as we now have investors, it's now solving for like opportunity. So where am I actually like sub-optimized as a, as a founder CEO um, and where someone can come in and either do it more professionally or just like, or they're perhaps a bit more rote tasks that I should just get myself out of the business of doing. So I can focus on strategic sales, um, strategic marketing, um, fundraising, um, yeah, helping my head of ops and finance, like lay down the operations, um, pipeline. And so it's an interesting focus change. That's I can feel the change that's occurred. It's wild because I, I literally raised this round last summer. We're raising the other round now. So it's only been like six months or so, but like, literally already feeling um yeah you know, sorry we we started raising at the beginning of the year we were just yeah. kind of finished up so um yeah like that six to eight months like just how quickly that can that, that that focus
0: can shift how big is the team now
1: just curious So we're at five full-time, but we currently have eight open positions that we just posted. (laughs) We just posted a week and a half ago. Four of them are full-time, four of them are for summer interns um, that we hope a couple of them may turn into, you know, can can convert into full-times. But, yeah, it's going to be – it's wild. As we're wrapping up fundraising, we're now gearing up the uh, the recruitment process. Yeah, <laughs> so it never, yeah. never stops.
0: <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. Keep growing more and more. And, and for you then, like you mentioned not having experience as in industry came in kind of fresh, but having that, having like immigrant parents, the work ethic and really trying to be frugal with the money and make it last. Like w- what's been helpful for you as a founder? Like who have been either your mentors or how, you know, it's there's so many unanswered questions as you're starting a company for you like what's helped you through this last couple of years of growing the business?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'll say this. I mean, once we finished raising the round um, at the at, at the recommendation of people that I that I very much trust, um, you know, I got advisors on the sales side of the business and on the operation side of the business. Um, and I'll be pretty like, candid. One of them is more on a retainer basis. The other one, it was a slight equity deal. Yeah. Um, at Vest and all that kind of jazz. The two best investments I have made, um, they have taught me um, the industry um, from both a sales and operational perspective in a way that I could not have gotten otherwise. I don't think I could have deployed capital, whether it's cash or equity, in a more efficient way that multiplied my knowledge base as a founder than to get the right advisors. And um I would recommend uh, and that was a, that's a big recommendation that I would give to, to other aspiring entrepreneurs is like, and it, it depends on your cat table. I'd say certainly if you're a solo founder, like the way I was, um, you know, equity is the best tool that you have. Um it can be a moat um to to to, to attracting the best talent um and certainly yeah getting the best advice. And so Um, I would say that, but but what I would also say is, for myself, being in the field uh, allowed me to ask, I think, really good questions. Um, And I have very much kept a beginner's mentality and mindset when I hop on the phone with them. I will say that we have a a salesperson on our team who is a bit more experienced, uh, I will admit. And so when we talk about certain distributor um, relationships or retailer relationships, I will straight up ask him for his... (sighs) his thoughts and his opinions because he, he will have worked with them before. Um, and and Hey, that's why, you know, we brought him onto the team was because he can give, you know, that kind of guidance. And so, um, yeah, it is the balance of like knowing how to trust people, but then also like challenging them too you know, asking them questions because it's, it's important to not just take anything at face value. Um, so I don't, this your, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, basically getting the right advisors.
0: <laughs> Which is huge. I mean, like I said, equity is a, something you can deploy to help that in terms of getting the right people on board. And that's something I think about At Vitalize in terms of why people accept, for instance, we have right now at least uh, Irish Angels, which is an angel group and as well as a fund. And so it's like, why does someone want to work with an angel group? A lot of times it's depending on who those people are in the group. If we can get the right people, it can be really helpful for them versus also getting individual angels can be really helpful in the early stages as well. Uh, And then you look at even some later rounds where people still... bigger rounds of fundraising, they'll bring in or have an allocation for some angels who are strategic and can help them and advise them in some way where they don't already have that expertise or that knowledge. Um, which if you're taking a smaller check can be worth it too. Like it's all depends on what you're looking, looking for out of it. And, and with this, as we kind of wrap things up, what's been most helpful for you in terms of helping you unwind and kind of step away, uh, make sure you can kind of play the long game and continue this company.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel very, uh, very fortunate, very blessed uh, to have a very loving fiance. Um, Shout out, yeah, <laughs> who, yeah. Who, I mean, for anyone who who does startups and has a significant other, I mean, you know that they're the they're the ones who keep it together while we're often you know, kind of going crazy. Um, and then I'll say too, like, if I'm being honest, the last year, you know, going through this pandemic. I think if it hasn't given you the proper perspective on what's like really important in life, then you'll have missed out on, I think, a pretty key lesson. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, the pandemic serves to be um, a lesson for us all, but uh, yeah, if you can take any, if you can try to create, make make anything positive um, out of what's been just a very terrible time. um, You know, I think that's one thing that I would say I I, I've taken away. So, you know, I, I I've gotten a little bit better, although I think they would probably dispute this at, you know, Calling call my parents, um, you know, talking to my family, um, talking to, talking to like close friends. Um, you know, fortunately also have, I'm, I'm 33 right now. And a lot of my friends, um, you know, during the pandemic are married and just recently started families of, of their own. Yeah. And so just having that perspective to just realize that, you know, I think, I think if you're going for it, like you have to go for it. Like there's, there's no, um, you know, it, it, it's really hard, I think to create anything, of substance this quickly, if you're not working very hard and it's a, and at times very long hours. I, I think it's yeah. very, I, I think it's a hard thing to, to accomplish. Um, at the same time, you know, being able to just have people around you who can give you that kind of perspective on what's really important in life, um, is a, yeah, is big. Like you know, the opportunities that I get to have now as an entrepreneur, um, you know, the conversations I get to have. Sometimes looking at the bank account that we have as a as a business, I'm like I've never even fathomed of you know of us having that kind of um that kind of capital i mean it's still a pittance (laughs) compared (laughs) to what even certain emerging brands have but uh you know it's important to just keep it keep everything in its proper perspective is probably the best thing that i would that that's worked for me and then sure at times it's i don't know getting a good workout in punching something um (laughs) you know like like some kind of I don't know pillow or a uh, yep. or something uh, <laughs> can be super helpful too. Especially with the weather getting better, um, Yeah, that, that uh, that's a good thing.
0: <laughs> absolutely. One of the last questions I have is just what is next for for Sanzo? You know, I mean, I'll say this:
1: like, so our mission long term, not to get too philosophical again, but it's our mission is to bridge cultures by connecting people with authentic flavors. I really believe like my whole, my, my, my thesis, why I've decided that this is what I want to pursue in life is that I, I believe this beverage should be both in in, in New York and in Shanghai and, and in Los Angeles and also, frankly, in like the center of the country. Um, and so, you know, from a distribution standpoint, from a brand and storytelling standpoint, um, I am just very like fired up about the idea that we get to like, you know, educate folks about, about these new flavors or for folks in the API community, um, you know, help them, you know, quote unquote, like feel seen. Um, I just, and, 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 so, you know, whatever those actual like financial metrics finalize at, you know, that's obviously, you know, we obviously have things that we're trying to get to, but from a more of qualitative standpoint, it's like, can we actually make a dent in bridging cultures? Um, especially at the time right now, when you're seeing, um, you know, increased incidents of anti-Asian sentiment and, and hate crimes, um, you know, I still, I still remain honestly pretty optimistic about where we're going long term. Um, you know, I think there's still a lot of pent up frustration or negative sentiments, um, but overall, like, I, what what I go with is brands like Sanzo could not have existed. Even as recently as like five years ago, and the reason it, I think my brand can exist now is because of a lot of the work that's been done by folks you know before us, whether they be you know activists or creatives in you know TV, film, uh, the culinary arts, what have you. Yeah. Um, and so I do believe that you know the folks coming you know after us will have the same dynamic because of you know the brands that you know. Like myself and like other folks who are in my like class um, <laughs> of of new CPG brands have created, and so you know it's a I I I I stay very optimistic um, on on that, and so like, what's for you know what, what's next for us is just you know con- trying to continue to push the ball forward, um, trying to make the the the, the CPG industry um, a more inclusive one, trying to make the shelves that you shop at a more inclusive one. Um, that's, and yeah, I mean, I don't, the great thing about it, honestly, why I'm excited about this is that like, I don't think I'll actually accomplish it in my lifetime. Like, I think we're still going to be fighting this, um, for still generations to come. And for whatever reason, like the masochist in me, that gets me excited and like, and and gets me inspired (laughs) to do this every day. It's like the knowing that I will probably not get there. Um is just like interesting. <laughs> yeah.
0: well, what if? what if you do? <laughs> yeah. At the yeah. same time. <laughs> yeah. And Sandra, what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they want to? I'm just curious.
1: Uh yeah, probably I would say on a personal level, my Instagram handle. Um it's at Alessandro Rocco. That's A-L-E-S-S-A-N-D-R-O, R O C O. Um, that's my handle on both Instagram and on Twitter. Um LinkedIn's also pretty good too. I tend to be weirdly
0: active there. I love it. Love it. And for people who want to check it out online as well, drinksanzo.com. I'll link everything in the show notes as well. Just go grind.com slash podcast. But Sandro, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.